Hi there everyone and welcome to another week of the good news according to Job. I trust you're all doing well and that you're ready to dive into this next section. Uh, last week we looked at Zophar and we saw his introduction to the idea of wisdom, the language of wisdom that he brought into the discourses with uh, Job and the friends. And this week we're turning back to Job to see what Job has to say in response. So the section that we are looking at today is Job 12 through to 14. And so it's quite a long section. It's, there's a lot happening and a lot to think about. And I really encourage you to, to spend some time reading through it if you haven't yet. Uh, because unfortunately we won't be able to go into all the details of this passage. But if you can, wrestle through it, think through it, write some thoughts down on it. And as we work through it, uh, continue to wrestle and, and contemplate what Job is saying here. As for this video, before we begin and actually read a passage, I thought to actually just paint a bit of a picture for us to help us to understand the position that Job is in. It's rather a frustrating position. And I think what would be helpful is for us to get a bit of a picture in our mind. There is this looming picture running through Job, of an idea of a courtroom. Uh, Job uses the language, the friends, uh, they engage with the language uh, to call God to court, to get him to give an account as if he had to defend himself. And Job himself sees him in, himself in a position where he needs to try or wants to defend his circumstance and his position. And so to cry out to God, to ask God questions and to get answers from God. But the strange thing that we, we might not always see in this, in this picture of Job is that in this courtroom, Job has three friends, uh, three attorneys, if you'd like, sitting by his side. And as you know, if you are sitting in a position where you are in court and you are needing someone by your side, you are hoping that they will defend you, that they will come up for you, that they will give advice uh, and try and help you in the best way possible to, uh, to deal with the circumstance that you're in. But the unfortunate thing for Job is he's sitting in this cosmic courtroom, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, with these three friends that are not sitting next to him defending him, but in actual fact sitting accusing him. So when these three friends should be standing up, and saying something in defense of Job, they're instead standing up and accusing Job of sinning, accusing Job of being guilty. And so as we've heard the three friends over the last couple of weeks, you have this picture now of these three friends that are there supposedly to comfort him in the beginning. But as time unfolds, they're pointing out why he must be guilty. What's a little bit more frustrating about it is it's not a strong argument. These three friends, they walk up to the judge's bench, look at the judge, and essentially are saying to the judge, he has been guilty. And in that moment, you would imagine the judge to say, but guilty of what? And their response is, we're not sure, but we know he is guilty of things. And so the description of Job's guilt of what he has done is vague. It's unsure. There's no certainty. But against the backdrop of this, we have the person or the one that Job is coming to, and that is God himself. And Job 
is calling out, crying out to God and saying, asking God for God to give an account of him and to explain to him, to answer his questions that he has. But the irony of this picture is that going to God, it is God that is the the one who is holding Job guilty, at least in the picture of the friends. So as the friends uh, look at the situation, they're saying, God is doing this to you. He has taken you to court because you've done something wrong. And what makes this ironic is that in the beginning of Job, we are told instead by God that Job is blameless and upright. And so this complicates the whole situation where the three friends come along and should be comforting and counseling and supporting Job. They are accusing him. They are throwing him under the bus. While God, who is the one who supposedly is uh, afflicting Job because of something that he has done, has already told us that he is blameless, upright, that he fears God and that he shuns evil. And so this is the picture that we have as we consider Job. This is the picture that we have as we come to these, uh, these next three chapters of Job, as Job responds. And so what Job sees here is rather interesting and in many ways exciting uh, as we unpack it, as we think about it and re- reflect on what Job all has to say. So as we begin, let's read uh, a short section out of this. And I'm going to turn to Job 12 for us, and I'm going to read verses 13 uh, through to 25. Listen to what it says. To God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and insight, both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads rulers away stripped and makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles put on by kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows officials long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisers and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings utter darkness into the light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He makes them wander in a trackless wasteland. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. And so the reason why I've turned to this section for us to really consider and have in the back of our mind is as Job reflects on God, we get this far uh, more intense image of, of, of who God is in Job's sight. Job sees God not as, uh, as the person prosecuting or the person sitting on the other side of a courtroom. He doesn't see God simply as the judge, but he sees God as the one over all things. God as the one that is in control of all things. And so this isn't simply a court case of a normal type of everyday kind of understanding of a court case in that sense. That this isn't some 
a picture of a court case where Job is sitting down, there's someone that is challenging him and there's a judge to judge. But that God is even in control of every working aspect of that courtroom. God is the one that is in control of, as he says there, those that, um, those that despise or those that deceive. Um, and so he says, to him belong strength and insight. Both deceived and deceiver are his. And so we see this language coming across that there's both sides of the coin to which God is involved. He is aware of. He is in control of. He is God over all. And so maybe this actually upsets us, what Job has said here. And I know for, for a while I'm, I've been wrestling through this as well, contemplating and considering it. And it's something that we don't simply want to accept. We want to understand it. It needs to make sense to us. Understanding how God is in control. It needs to fit in with our framework most of the time. And so when we think about God and how he governs and is in control of his creation, we expect a level of his control to be within reason. To be within how we can understand it. To be within a level in which when we consider God's control and how he governs his creation that it fits in line with how we would do it. But unfortunately, that's not what Job is picking up here. Job is picking up something far more significant and far more interesting. But before we go any deeper with that, uh, as we approach this section, Job is turning to his friends. And in verse 4 of chapter 12, we feel the weight of, of who Job is in light of the circumstance. He says that I have become a laughing stock to my friends, though I called on God and he answered a mere laughing stock, though righteous and blameless. So Job is setting it up. He's telling us that he is righteous. He is blameless. He knows who, where he stands and in front of who he stands. And he knows that uh, beside the point, beside that, that he is a laughing stock amongst his friends. He isn't considered, he isn't weighed up, he isn't, uh, he isn't being counseled uh, by those that are closest to him, those that are around him, but instead he is being laughed at by them. And this is quite a sad picture that is painted for us. Then Job moves on in verse 7 to 9 and he says something quite interesting as well. And this we need to highlight uh, as, it, as it comes to the surface again later on toward the end of Job. And he says this, but ask the animals and they will teach you or the birds of the sky, birds in the sky and they will tell you or speak to the earth and it will teach you or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? So he is looking at his life. He is reflecting on his suffering and his circumstance. And he's saying, go and ask all of creation. Who holds all of creation together? Who holds it and, con and, and manages it and deals with it and is in control of it? Does creation suddenly act on its own? Does creation act independently of God? Or is creation always under God's ruling hand? And so Job draws our attention to creation. He says, look at creation, consider creation and see how God is in control of that. Why would I be any different? So that last line that he says, 
Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? He says, if you look at creation, creation will tell you that what I'm facing, what I'm encountering, my suffering, my hardship, my, my persecution, however you want to, whatever you want to call it, it is at the hand of God. It's not that what I have done is a result of it, but it's under, uh, under who it is happening. All that is happening to me is under God. All that is, all the suffering, everything that you see when you look at me is a result of who God is, how God is in control. Now, this might seem like a frightening thing to say, but the question we need to ask on top of that is, if Job is suffering, or if any suffering is, is occurring or happening, is it because God has lost control? Or is it that God has permitted it and is still in control? See, the frightening thing is we want to say that it can't be God who permits it or allows it to happen. That under his hand, all things take place. Because as soon as we say it, we feel like we are accusing God and saying that God is the one that does bad things. But that's not the case here. Job is making an observation, he's looking at creation and saying creation understands it, creation gets it, that even when all things are falling apart around us, it is not to say that God has lost control and that that thing is falling apart out of pure chaos and chance. The next thing that Job carries on to say, if that doesn't solidify it for us, is what he says in verse 10. In his hand is the life of every creature, and the breath of all mankind. Everything is held together. The very breath of every creature is, is God's. In His hand is the life of every creature. In His hand is the breath of all mankind. It is in God's hand that He is in control of all things. So let that sink in. Think about it for a little bit. How does that make you feel when you think that everything around you, when you open your eyes tomorrow morning and you look around you, whether it is good or bad, whatever is happening around you, is not outside of God's control. That even the chaos that we see in the world is not an indication that God has lost control. But in fact, He is still in control, even in those situations. It leaves us uncomfortable because we don't want to say it. But it's far more reassuring to know that He is still in control than to think that He has lost control. If God had to lose control, all things would cease to exist. You and I would cease to exist. But the fact that God is that we are still here, that we face hardship and good times, is an indication that God is in control. Beyond that, what Job is going back to, but deepening his, his understanding and deepening his thinking on that, is what he says to his wife. What, should we accept only good from God and not bad? And so we need to contemplate that question that he asks. When we experience hardship, do we run to find someone else or something else to blame? Or are we willing to say, okay, God, 
you are still in control, even of this. You have permitted this. You have allowed this to happen. And for that reason, there must be a deeper reason. There must be a reason that brings glory to your name. For everything that you do is ultimately for your glory. And everything that you permit and allow that takes place under your ruling hand is for your glory. So we need to really wrestle with what Job is saying here. And consider as he then goes in to verses 13 to 25, how he wrestles with this God who is on, who covers all the bases. As he says there in the beginning, to God belong wisdom and power. It's God's wisdom. It's his power. Counsel and understanding are his. And then verse 14, he says, what he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those he imprisons cannot be released. And then he paints these contrasts as he goes. Eventually he talks about, as he says in verse 15, He holds back the waters, there, um, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. And so we get these contrasts of him holding back, but also releasing and letting happen. And here's something that I've been considering for a couple days now as, as I'm contemplating these things is when you consider a, a natural disaster, if you think of an earthquake or a hurricane or a tsunami or something of that immense magnitude, when you consider it, are you thinking that in those cases it's random coincidence? That that event happened just because the earth shifted or something changed and, and it just happened? Or do you think that even in that, in that regard, God is in control? Then when the earth shakes, when the wind blows, that it is God that is in control. But what makes a disaster a disaster? Because if a wind, a hurricane, had a blow in a desert with zero population, is it just a wind? Or is it a natural disaster? You see, where, when nature converges with humanity and it is destructive it becomes a disaster but where man is not involved and the wind blows where it wants to or the earth shakes where there is no one it doesn't seem to be a disaster so it's just interesting to think that through does God not permit the earth to shake the wind to blow the the skies to crack open and pour down rain on us in a torrential flood? Or is it because we are afflicted that it becomes a disaster? So these are some of the things that we can just consider and think about. How we, what we call things, like natural disasters. Is it a natural disaster? Is it natural or is it a disaster? What is it? And so... Wrestle through it before we just make it an assumption that this is what it must be. That either God has lost control or God just lets random things happen because He wants to. Or is it part of God's creation? As He governs His creation, this is how it looks. But ultimately, that it is somehow working toward His glory. Let's continue as we turn to uh, chapter 13. Chapter 13, I want to pick up something for us 
He says here, Job says in verse 3, But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. So here's part of Job's desire. He has, he has a couple of requests and a, and a desire, and this is what he says. He desires to speak to the Almighty and to argue his case with God. Verse 4, You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. Here he's turning out to his friends, and he's saying, this is what I want. This is my desire. My desire is to ask God, to wrestle with God, to, to argue with Him, but to find out the answer. And you lot, sitting here by me, are helpless physicians. You aren't able to help me. He says in verse 5, If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. And so picking up on Zophar, who introduced the, the word for wisdom, uh, Job now turns to the idea of wisdom and he says, for you lot, for you three sitting here, what would be wisdom is to actually be quiet, to be silent, because nothing you say is helpful. You are worthless physicians. You are not able to help or heal me in anything that you are saying. And then verse 15, he says this, uh, he's now shifting beyond the friends and he starts turning to look at God. And he's saying that he's willing to say and speak his heart, speak his mind. Uh, as we read previously that Job is speaking out of the anguish of his soul. And here he turns and he says, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. And so this seems harsh. But what Job is saying is, even if God had to kill me, if he had to cut me off now, I would still hope, I would still hope and trust in him. And he says, but I will, I will, if I have the chance, defend my ways to God's face. I will say what I want to say, because I want to understand, I want to learn, I want to know why. Why has this happened? I know you are in control, but how? Maybe what Job is truly asking is, how is this for your glory? How is this for your glory? And then verse 16. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare come before him. And so Job is again highlighting what he has said earlier. That he is blameless and righteous or upright. And that he says, if that isn't true, no one would come against God. A person that is not blameless, a person that is corrupt or, or in the wrong will not argue or want to challenge God because they deep down, they know that they are in the wrong. He says, if, if this is any consolation to you, my three friends sitting next to me, the fact that I am wanting to get an answer from God, argue with Him, turn to Him, should be for you an indication that I am blameless, that I am upright, and that I can and want to come to God. Instead of running away or hiding from God. He says this then in verse 19, however. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. So at this point, he's still wrestling with his friends and everything that's been building up over the last couple of uh, times that they've spoken. And now he turns to them and he says, okay. You have said enough in this courtroom. You have said a whole bunch that I am guilty. But if you can bring a charge against me, find that guilt that you are talking about. Find it and I will be quiet. 
You say I'm guilty, but find where I am guilty, and I will keep quiet, and I will die. I will lay down, and I will die. And so he really challenges, Job really challenges his friends here, so much stronger than what we could ever do. But then it carries on in verse 20 to 22. He says, only grant me these two things, God. So now Job stops talking to the friends. He turns to God. And, and in, in one sense, this shifts the whole language of the rest of what Job has to say here. As he turns and he really wrestles and contemplates uh, his position before God again. He says, only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. And summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. So Job is saying to you, he's asking God for two things. Stop afflicting me with your terrors. I am frightened. I'm at the end of myself. And beyond that, will you please answer me? Will you answer me? I'm in pain, I'm suffering, I'm terrified. But will you answer me? Will you let me speak and will you answer me? Now I believe that this does get answered later on. God does eventually answer Job. And so there is, there is a circle that's completed here. Job is really asking, he's pleading. He's asking God to to remove the terrors, and to answer him. And this will take place. So we need to hang in there to get to the answer. But here's Job crying out for one. And then verse 26, uh, he throws this out there. For you write down bitter things against me, and make me reap the sins of my youth. Job at this point is really saying that he feels as though he is even though he has dealt with his sin, that he is righteous, he is blameless, he is upright before God, that for some reason it feels as though if there is any sin, it is the sin of his youth that is coming back and affecting him. Even though that there must be, he must have dealt with it, that somehow he might, must have forgotten something in his young days, in his youthfulness, in his ignorance, that he forgot something or didn't deal with something, and it's that that God is accusing him of. But he doesn't know, he doesn't grasp the full extent. Um, but then he says this, and this seems to be the, the kind of fallback and f- concluding thoughts that Job gen- generally has as he contemplates his position in front of God. Chapter 14, verse 1. Mortals, born of women, are a few days and full of trouble. And so this sets... The, the tone for the next section of what Job says. And it really is just a, a fleshing out of that. He says, mortals, born of women, and he says, are born purely for trouble. Nothing comes out of us other than trouble. And our days are few. As he says, he says, are of few days. What he really means is, in the bigger scheme of things, we, we, we live for just a few days. And so as he contemplates once again his life, he recognizes the, the shortness of his life. He recognizes the mortality of his life. And then verse 5 he says, A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. 
We are limited. We are bound. We are, we are under your uh, rule, under your reign, under your control in that, in that sense. That you are the one that has, as he said earlier, as he says in chapter 12, that uh, in his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. So in 12 verse 10, you hear that language. And then again in, in 14 verse 5, a person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. We are bound by what God has established, by who God is. We cannot function beyond who we are, beyond what God has created us to be. So when you consider who you are, your ability to act, to be, to do, to live the life that you live is contained within who God has created you to be. You cannot exceed the creation that God has made you to be. And then we're going to turn to this last, uh, just one of the last verses here. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 14, Job asks a really interesting question. As he says, if someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal, or perhaps a better word, which is uh, for my release to come. It lines up a little bit better with what Job is saying. There. He says, in light of all of this, my days are numbered. I am coming to an end. But the question that I have is, will a person that dies live again? But I will wait for my release from this pain. And it's beautiful that Job asked that question. It's like this little thought, this little idea that's dropped into all that he says. And he asks this purely beautiful question. When my days are over, when this life comes to an end, will I one day live again? If someone dies, will they live again? And for us today, we have that answer. For us today, we know, yes, Job, yes, they do, in Christ, in the mediator that you so desperately longed for. Despite the hardship and the suffering, no matter what this world can throw at you, in that sense of hardship, suffering, sickness, or on the other side, no matter how many good things that you can get out of this life. God has established them all. But the one thing that He has permitted that far exceeds anything in this world is that He offers life. Not life now, but that after you die, that through His Son, Jesus Christ, you can have life. Life everlasting. In, a, in His presence, in His time, where there is no hardship, no sickness, no pain, no suffering, just life. 
life with our Lord Jesus Christ. Life with our Heavenly Father. And that no matter what hardships we face now, that the glory lies in the fact that we will be resurrected. And that no matter what we face now, it will never be able to rob us of what Christ Jesus has done for us. So Job has asked a crucial question in this passage. He's wrestled with so many different thoughts. That life dwindles away. Life is fleeting. But God is in control of everything. Even the fact that life is fleeting. But he has made a way out. And that is ultimately through his son Jesus Christ. Which we have come to know. Through God's incredible plan that's unfolded through time. May that encourage you. May you go and wrestle with it further. Unfortunately, we can't go any deeper at this point. But I hope that you will wrestle with it and think about it. And we'll see you back here next week. Cheers. Bye.